If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out text history to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. The Portable Antiquities Scheme, which records archaeological discoveries made by members of the public, has recently recorded its 1.5 millionth find since its launch 23 years ago. To mark this milestone, we've included a piece in our August issue highlighting 10 of the most significant of these discoveries. That article was compiled and co-written by Michael Lewis, who's head of the scheme. And in today's episode, he'll be discussing some of these artefacts and the process of discovering and recording them. Putting the questions to Michael was our content director, Dave Musgrove. 
I'm joined today by Professor Michael Lewis, who is Head of Portable Antiquities and Treasure at the British Museum. Uh, he's also an expert on the bio-tapestry, uh, and uh, we should have full disclosure here that Michael and I are writing a book about the bio-tapestry at the moment. We won't cover that in this conversation. Uh, so the Portable Antiquities scheme has been going for over 20 years, and uh, recently uh, it's recorded one and a half million fines. So we just wanted to chat about what the scheme is and uh, what sort of things we've been learning from it. Um, so we will jump straight in. Michael, thank you for joining us. No problem at all. Okay, so first question. Um, can you just tell us what exactly is the Portable Antiquities Scheme? Yeah, it's a funny name, isn't it? Um, the Portable Antiquities Scheme. Well, it's a project to record archaeological finds made by members of the public. And as you probably would expect, most of those finds are found by metal detector users, but they can actually be found by anybody, basically anybody who's not a professional archaeologist. So as you say, we've recorded uh, 1.5 million archaeological finds now on the Portable Antiquities Scheme database, which is live for anyone to look at, www.finds.org.uk, and you can look at any of those objects that have been found. I mean, what's truly amazing, I think, about this data set is that all of those objects are discoveries by everyday people going out there looking for archaeology, sometimes not even looking for it. And obviously, it's adding immensely to our understanding of Britain's heritage. So the kind of origins of the scheme really were within the reform of treasure law. Um, so it was for a long time, since the 13th century, probably even before that, um, there was a, a legal obligation for people to report um, or hand over, probably is the best way to phrase it, um, any objects or gold or silver that um, that they found um, because the Crown basically wanted to claim these objects. And treasure law had evolved over time, and I suppose it was probably in the 18th and 19th centuries that people realised that archaeological finds had a better value, a bigger value uh, than a bullion value, that they had a, another value as well, a cultural value. And so treasure laws began to be reformed. And the kind of last major reform of those treasure laws was in 1996 with the, the Treasure Act 1996, which for the first time really outlined a different way of dealing with treasure. It kind of provided a, a more watertight definition of what treasure was. Um, before that time, we had a law known as treasure trove, which in fact, some people still use that word treasure trove to talk about treasure finds in, in, in England. Um, which is not quite right. Treasure trove was essentially objects which were buried with the intention of recovery. And it was the duty of the local coroner in the district in which these objects were found to determine whether these objects were treasure trove um, or not. And they had to kind of try and understand what the motivations were of the people that buried those objects. So the, the 1996 Act really tried to define much more tightly what treasure was. But at that time, it hadn't really envisaged anything like the Portable Antiquity Scheme. It was really just updating the, the, the legislation. And when it was going through Parliament, um, a lot of archaeologists sort of asked, well, this is OK for dealing with those kind of high-level, precious metal, important objects. But what about everything else? And, you know, as archaeologists, uh, we're obviously aware that um, the gold and shiny stuff is probably not the most interesting. In fact, it can be... 
um, some of the most mundane objects that can actually transform uh, knowledge of particular places and sites. So the Portable Antiquity Scheme was set up as a way of trying to encourage the metal detecting community to hand over for recording objects that they discover that aren't treasure on a voluntary basis. Talk us through the process then. So what happens when somebody finds an object? What do they what do they do? Uh, and is it the same across the whole of the UK? Because you've talked about England and Wales specifically for the uh, Portable Antiquities Scheme, um, but the uh, the provisions are different elsewhere. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And it's probably quite an important thing we need to sort of make clear here is that uh, the Portable Antiquities Scheme covers England and Wales. The legislation in Scotland, Northern Ireland, even the Crown Dependencies are quite different. Um, so to, to, to sort of break those down into their own component parts, um, in Scotland, for example, everything has to be, all archaeological finds made by the public have to be reported by law under um, their law of treasure trove. It's still treasure trove. Uh, it's similar, I'd say, in the Crown Dependencies, so the Channel Islands, the Isle of Man, where there's a requirement to hand over uh, these these finds. Um in England and Wales, as, as I say, is that there's only a legal obligation to report the treasure finds and then we record the other objects on a more voluntary basis. The, the Treasure Act, though, also applies to Northern Ireland. Um, but in Northern Ireland, um, you're allowed to go out and use a metal detector to look for non-archaeological finds, but you're not allowed to use a metal detector to go out looking for archaeology. So obviously people might be looking on the beach or, or whatever, and they might f- be looking for just modern-day coins in Northern Ireland and then kind of come across um, something that's treasure and therefore it's a legal obligation to report that under the Treasure Act. So you can see that the different places or the different parts of the United Kingdom work in quite different ways, and there's obviously historic uh, reasons for, for why that's the case. And I suppose one thing you know to add to that which is probably important to, to understand is that in this country, in contrast to other countries in the world, the landowner has best title to the objects discovered on their land. What does that mean? So finders, well, that means that um, the finds are essentially the landowner's property. Um, So some people think it's finders keepers, but it's not. It's finders find and the landowner decides, I think is probably um, fair to say, apart from treasure, which is potentially crown property. So as you can see, it's quite complicated in terms of ownership and who finds the objects. But in essence, what should happen is the finder should have permission from the landowner to search. They should record, um, uh, they should show their finds to the landowner. It's up to the landowner to decide what happens with those finds. But obviously, we hope that they will be shown to us so we can record them. So finders of objects that they think could be treasure. So essentially, this is gold and silver objects over 300 years old. It's hordes of coins, um, two or more of them if they're precious metal, ten or more if they're not. Um, and there's other criteria to the Treasure Act as well, but essentially they're the main ones. Um, if you find those sorts of objects, then you have to report them by law to the coroner in the district in which they were found within 14 days. Presuming a museum is interested in acquiring these objects then um, the coroner will hold an inquest to determine whether this find truly is treasure or not. And at that state, when the coroner decides it is treasure, those objects become crown property. 
So there was a big sign up from that, from the landowner organisations and the and the archaeological organisations as well. So most, you know, if you just take put it into a web browser, you'll get the the code of practice. Okay. All right. So um, one and a half million finds, twenty odd years worth of uh, things being recorded. One imagines it's made quite a substantial uh, difference to our understanding of British archaeology. Um, and we're going to just go through a few little examples from the feature that you've written for BBC History magazine, just talking about some areas where uh, we have learnt um, a few bits and bobs. And we're going to start off with grots, grots from yes. Roman Britain. <laughs> so you're going to have to tell us what is a grot uh, and why are they things that feature in the PAS, the Portable Antiquities Scheme. I think we can say PAS now, now we've... Uh, uh, we've talked yeah, about Portland yeah. Antiquities for a while. Yes. Yeah, so, um, well, as you know, Dave, I'm not a, a Roman um, specialist and neither am I that interested in, in, in Roman coins. But it is it is the case that um, a substantial uh, amount of objects that are recorded through the Portland Antiquity Scheme are Roman in date, um, which might surprise some people, actually. Um, and, you know, talking about those people from other other countries to think that, almost 50% of the data set is Roman material is quite, um, is quite amazing. Um, we are selective in recording post-medieval material, um, to be fair. So, you know, that explains um, some of that. But even so, the Romans seem to be throwing stuff all over the place. You know, I don't know what they were, they were careless, I think, in my opinion. But anyway, um, one of the things that they, they do seem to lose in, in terrific numbers um, are um, these coins. And Grot really is a very, um, I suppose, it's, it's a pretty crude term to describe these Roman coins, um, normally of base metal, so copper alloy, that um, that are heavily corroded. Um, and indeed, for most people, they look like a disc um, and nothing more. Um, there are, of course, some detectorists who are pretty talented at, um, at, at reading these these uh, grotty coins, hence the word. Um, but we have um, some really great colleagues within the British Museum who are um, who are able to make out the most amazing things from these these objects that don't seem to to say anything. You can see these coins in areas where traditionally we have felt that Roman occupation was was less. Even the in the parts of the country where you live in the in the West Country, you know, they seem to be touched um, by the Roman Empire in quite in a way that we never really um, quite appreciated. I think they are quite an interesting um, example of an object recorded with the scheme simply because they're the sorts of things that most people could easily throw away and think, oh, this doesn't really add anything at all. And whilst they don't look like much, and it's probably fair to say most museums probably wouldn't be acquiring them in vast numbers, um, they are objects that can tell us a lot about, um, you know, where people were living, um, transport and trade links, and and, and all, all of that sort of stuff. So yeah, that they've they've become sort of symbolic, really, um, in a way of the portable antiquity scheme, making the kind of bland really fascinating. Um, and like I said, there's there's people, my colleagues at the museum, who know much much more about these these Roman coins, and they can tell you the the intricacies of what this these these different coins from different areas um, actually mean. 
So let's let's move on from uh, from these rather shabby uh, Roman grots to something uh, altogether more splendid. Um, the, the Staffordshire hoard, um, surely one of the greatest finds of the of the PAS period. Um, so this is this amazing, uh, what is it, sixth seventh century hoard, um, roughly contemporary maybe with with Sutton Hoo that you you mentioned earlier. Um, just, just tell us a bit about the the circumstances of that and uh, and what we've learned from it. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it's not often really that you get a find that sort of rivals Sutton Ho in 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 that that sort of way. So, um, yeah, it's 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 about four thousand six hundred pieces, and some of them are larger than others, and some of them are quite fragmentary of precious metal. Uh, so mostly it seems war gear uh, and it seems to be the kind of loss somehow probably stripped um, from a defeated army that was buried for some unclear reason but surely to go back for um, in a field in Staffordshire. Now um, I remember when this was found and it and it was truly remarkable I don't know if you remember the papers at the time I mean obviously you know obviously the media love gold and silver and it this really did splash it all over there i think that the reality was um this period is obviously sometimes called by people you know as we always say incorrectly the dark ages um and and that's because obviously um the texts that we have that tell us about this period are, are are not that informative i guess um but when you see the material culture that these people were producing from this time, it is absolutely incredible that they could produce such stuff um, with the, you know, the, the kind of the tools and um, the ideas that they sort of had. Um, now, yeah, like I said, I remember it, it coming in. And actually, we had a, a post Antiquity Scheme Fines Liaison Officer Regional Meeting in Birmingham not that long after. And I think we spent about a couple of hours looking at this stuff and passing bits of the Staffordshire hoard around. It was it was really an amazing experience. I think we got gold fatigue after a while, but it was it was just incredible. But I mean, obviously, it does two things, doesn't it? First of all, um, when you see these sorts of finds, you kind of realise, um, you know, most people can look at that and think, gosh, that is such an amazing discovery in its own right. You know, it doesn't I suppose for a lot of people, the context is is at the back of their minds. But what it did as well is it brought together so many different objects um, from that period in one place, you know, that we hadn't had before. So they it's it started for the people involved, and obviously um, there is, like I said before, with other with the other finds, is there's there's obviously people who know a lot more about this than than myself. But um, for the people who who looked at the hoard it created lots and lots of questions because objects that had been found in isolation dated many, you know, many, many years away apart from each other suddenly seem to be found in one place. So how does this make sense? How do you get objects from, you know, the early Anglo-Saxon period, perhaps even going up to ninth century in one sort of hoard? Um, And of course, it means that we've either got things massively wrong. So I think one of the things the Staffordshire hoard has done is enabled... um, Anglo-Saxonists to step back and look at um, this material culture and kind of question everything that they believed before um, about the Anglo-Saxons and uh, what they could produce and where things were made and the dates of objects. So it's it's just, in some ways, you could argue it's not been that helpful because it's just created a big question mark on um, 
decades and decades of academic study and thought. Um, but I suppose that's the thing that's exciting about archaeology is that, you know, there's things buried like this under the ground. I mean, who would have thought the, the you know, the biggest haul of Anglo-Saxon gold would be found in Staffordshire? If you were going to put a, a pin on a map, you probably wouldn't choose Staffordshire. Um, I went to Birmingham Museums shortly before lockdown and, you know, it's amazing. You go in there and there's a map of the museum and it has numbers of all of the galleries. Only one gallery has its own name and that is the Staffordshire Hall Gallery. Um, so, and I went there and you go around and it's a whole, you know, gallery dedicated to the early medieval period, the Anglo-Saxons, um, with all of these activities kind of organised for children. It's just fantastic that an object like this can you know provide those those interesting insights for for so many people and it's also great that it features the fact um, that this was obviously found by a metal detectorist you know there's a, a video of him talking about his discovery and there's a um, one with the finds liaison officer at the time talking about what he felt like when he went round to collect all this stuff you know it's just incredible really um, I mean and, and I think that's one thing I love about the Portsmouth Antiquity Scheme it's these kind of human stories behind these objects that also connect us with these people from the past as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But I think the, this find sort of reminds us that um, in the early years of the Norman Conquest, it was by no means certain that William was going to be able to, um, to maintain his suppression of the kingdom. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. 
what about then uh, this this another find the uh, the Watlington hoard, which I I think is uh, is perhaps even more interesting at the moment, particularly for fans of uh, of the Last Kingdom, the uh, TV series. People who might have been uh, watching that and seeing these uh, the uh, the dynamic, the relationship between Wessex and Mercia and the uh, and the Vikings who they are up against, the Danes who they're up against, because this is a this is a hoard that um, we think was buried in the 870s something like that and it might have been buried by someone from the viking great army the uh the, the force that was uh moving around england and causing such trouble and then there's this fascinating coin the two emperors coin which seems to have uh the uh, the respective rulers of wessex and mercia on either side so telling us something about um, a relationship between Wessex and Mercia that is perhaps suggesting they're on a par rather than Wessex being the superior party. So t- tell us about that. Yes, I mean, it is a, an amazing find. And I think probably the first thing to do is to talk about the, the, the discovery. I mean, the discovery was made by a metal detectorist again. And what he did was 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 brilliant, really, because he stopped because obviously it was, a, it was an in-situ hoard. He stopped and contacted his local finds liaison officer, who, from memory, she was on an aeroplane about, about to go to somewhere um, somewhere hot at that time. So um, a neighbouring finds liaison officer, who's now um, not no longer with us, um, David Williams, went out there. Um, and he, he said to the finder that, well, I can't dig it up today. I'm going to have to, you have to wait a few days. So this poor guy, James Mather, who found it, he kind of had to, um, I think he probably never slept for several nights, but he was just pacing up and down um, his uh, his house, I guess, um, waiting for an archaeologist to to do the business. But so it's a, it's an amazing thing to start with that, you know, the finder did stop to allow a, a, an archaeological excavation to happen because obviously that does help us understand a little bit more about why these, these objects were buried in the first place. But as you say, I mean, the find itself is, is, is truly amazing one. It, it contains um, 23 objects and then, you know, these 200 odd coins um, of Ad- Alfred the Great and this this guy called Kerwolf II of Mercia, who we don't really know too much about, in fact. And and as you have alluded to, um, there's this there's this kind of thought, I suppose, um, that Alfred and Kerwolf were in an alliance together, maybe as equals, maybe not, um, against this biggest threat that's obviously Anglo-Saxon England um, had 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 probably ever faced with the almost um, likely capitulation of the kind of um, of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms to to these Viking invaders. Um, so it seems, as you say, that Kerwolf and Alfred worked together to kind of repel this threat. Um, but then when the moment came, and obviously Alfred was into writing history, so he could do this, um, he decided to erase Kerwolf a little bit from the story and, and make it out that um, it was he, Alfred, that kind of saw off the Danes um, pretty much alone. And then, of course, um, pretty much annexed um, Mercia. And then that that kind of started the re-expansion of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom. So, it, I mean, it is an amazing discovery and there is some amazing stories, um, but you know, behind it uh, uh, as well. Yeah, like you say, we don't know who buried it, but it seems because of the nature of the objects, you know, the, of, of what they are, is that there's some a war gear that was that was buried by um, a member of this this great army. Um, and we always wonder why why didn't these people come back for these objects? You know, what happened to them? Um, and there's a sort of famous um, story in Pepys's um, 
diary when the Dutch were coming up the uh, the River Thames and there was a bit of a panic in London. So people hid all of their position, possessions. But he got kind of quite annoyed with his wife because she'd um, taken stuff back. I think it was somewhere in East Anglia, I can't remember now, um, to bury their family possessions. And then she couldn't remember where she buried these things. So, you know, we sometimes think that maybe this these these people who buried these objects kind of came to a bit of a, a sad end. But maybe they didn't. Maybe they just forgot where they put what they um, buried. I mean, who knows? And we can't really know. But it's an, it is an amazing to think about how these things entered the ground. And obviously, lucky for the finders who then rediscover them right look the chew valley hoard I, I i like this one this is a really good one so going forward a bit in time um these are some coins buried in somerset and we think early in the reign of uh william the first william the conqueror um so uh that's right um in the middle of one of the most interesting periods of uh, of english history what what do these coins tell us and what do we know about the circumstances of uh, of their deposition and indeed their finding and recording in the PAS? Yes, so this is quite a new find, actually. I mean, it was found, when was it now? It was um, in 2019. I think it was at the, I think it was not sort of near the end of the year. I can't remember, I can't remember off the top of my head now anyway. But anyway, it was found in, it was it's a fairly recent find and it's still being studied to, in many ways at the, at the British Museum by my colleague Gareth Williams. Um, so, a lot of what we will know is still to be sort of learnt in, in many ways, but it's about two and a half thousand um, silver pennies of Harold and, and William. Um, the interesting thing is it was, you know, buried relatively near Exeter and, and the coins date from the sort of early part of William the Conqueror's reign. Now, we always remember, I guess don't we? Um, William the Conqueror, you know, having this this firm rule, this good control on the on the, the whole of the country. But I think the, this find sort of reminds us that um, in the early years of the Norman Conquest, it was by no means certain that William was going to be able to, um, to maintain his suppression of the kingdom. And indeed, one thing um, I think we sometimes forget, even now, is that England in the 11th century, um, the English kings, even Edward the Confessor, didn't really have complete control of England even then. I mean, the north of the country, particularly Northumbria, was, you know, was pretty much its its own sort of um, territory. So, you know, William coming in as a new king, dealing with um, uh, rebellious uh, locals was, was something that obviously he had to deal with. And this, this horde it seems was potent, was probably buried, um, you know, because of probably local incursions. We're only sort of guessing a little bit here, but there seems to be obviously a, a worry of rebellion and, and they've buried these coins. Now, the quantity of coins is, is obviously quite important, particularly for um, Harold, um, because um, the numbers um, that we have of Harold individually have been massively increased because of this um, this hoard. So we now know we will, we will now know, we don't know now, but we will know um, much more, I think, about the circulation of coinage um, in Harold's reign and the earlier years of, of, of William II. Now, within this hoard is also a couple of coins that seem to be what we call mules. So they are coins that are constructed of two dies, one of Harold and one of William, 
um, together. Now, that could be completely accidental that the money had just got a bit muddled up with these dyes, or it could, um, and, and my colleague Gareth, you know, kind of likes this this story, it could be the case that some of these coins have been purposefully manufactured to try and um, outdo the kind of the sort of authorities who, um, who would tax you. So within the Anglo-Saxon period, they had a very, very sophisticated monetary system. Coins were repealed um, at different periods of time, and therefore you had to get your um, you had to use the new coins, if you like, in the king's name. Now, of course, to get your old coins to new coins, you'd have to pay a, a fee for that to sort of happen. Um, so therefore, there, it was in the interests of, um, of people who had coins only to change those that they needed to change, um, rather than, than change everything because you'd have to pay higher taxes. So perhaps there's a, a, an inkling here that the money was up to no good, trying to kind of mix coins together so they could sort of get away with whatever um, uh, mint that they were. I mean, we don't, we don't, really, we don't really know that for certain. Um, but it's, um, it's an interesting sort of thought anyway. But I think the true value of this hoard is going to be what it tells us about the monetary system um, in those early years of, of William the Conqueror and the, 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 the year, if you like, the few months of Harold's reign. Okay. Good stuff. Right. Um, To finish up then, so uh, as we've said, um, loads and loads of finds have been made, loads of discoveries recorded um, uh, that I guess otherwise wouldn't have been recorded. And most of these finds, uh, I think you said over 90%, are made by metal detectorists. So given that and your involvement in the Portable Antiquities scheme for a few years now, is your uh, view that metal detecting is on balance good or bad for archaeology? Well, I think I'd, I, th- I think in essence it's good, but I'd, pr- I'd kind of have a big ca- sort of caveat. I think responsible metal detecting has a, an amazing contribution it can make to, to archaeology. Most metal detecting happens on ploughed land where essentially it's agriculture that's bringing to the surface these archaeological finds they're you know they're they're kind of out of an archaeological context and if finders weren't recovering them then they probably that information about them would probably be lost forever so it's absolutely important that these objects are recorded and, and that's the essential thing that the portable antiquity scheme does it's no good having an object that's found even if it's absolutely amazing without that fine spot information it just becomes a, a kind of a work of art if you like which you know in some ways has its own sort of value but it doesn't add to archaeological knowledge it's only with a fine spot and only if it's recorded that these objects can add to our knowledge so so metal detecting if it's responsible is a good thing um, but otherwise it could be quite damaging michael thank you very much have we covered all the things we should have covered is there anything else you want to talk about I mean, one thing we didn't talk about, sorry, Dave, to ask the questions rather than <laughs> answer the questions I want to ask rather than the ones you, you've given me is, uh, is, is about the kind of the code of practice for responsible metal detecting. Because, um, you know, in this in, in this country, I mean, obviously there are because we have a voluntary scheme, people don't have to report the fines um, that are not treasure. Um, there's a potential, of course, of some people not bothering. And that's the case. You know, the the detecting community is a wide group of people. There are some people who are really, really keen on their past and really want to get involved. In fact, there's people who undertake training 
um, so that they can record fines directly on the Portable Antiquities Scheme database. They work alongside the fines liaison officers, essentially. So they're really, really dedicated people. And of course, there's people at the other end who are, who basically use metal detecting machines as a tool to illegally excavate and loot sites, you know, the night hawkers. And within the middle, there's a, a kind of a broad church of people that are basically happy to record their fines, but probably um, only do so if if they kind of come across their fines liaison officer. And that's why it's so important that the fines liaison officers reach out to those individuals uh, as well. But to try and help people understand what we as archaeologists want from metal detecting, um, we've come up with this code of practice for responsible metal detecting. It's been there for several years now and it was revised in 2017, which basically outlines what people should do before they go metal detecting, whilst they're metal detecting and after they're detecting. And, you know, some of the things you'd expect are in there, like getting permission of the landowner, recording your fines, if you find something that's in situ so it's not disturbed that you get archaeological help that sort of stuff that was michael lewis as i said earlier you can read about the 10 most significant discoveries from the portable antiquities scheme in our august issue which is on sale now and finds.org.uk is the place to go to find out more about the scheme itself okay well that's all for today This podcast was produced by Ben Ewart and Jack Bateman. Do join us again tomorrow when we'll be airing one of the talks from our recent Winchester History Weekend. (laughs) 